Greetings, 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 folks, and welcome back to The Africanist, your favorite podcast. I am your host, Bambanjai, and today I have the pleasure to invite a very special guest, a friend, a colleague, Professor Mariana Candido. Mariana Candido is an associate professor of history at Emory University. She is a specialist in West Central African history during the era of the transatlantic slave trade. Originally from Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, Mariana Candido concluded her BA in Brazil, her master's in African studies in Mexico, and her PhD in African history in Canada. In 2022, Professor Candido was elected as a fellow of the Royal Historical Society in the United Kingdom. She's a recipient of also several fellowships, including uh, one from the Institute of Advanced Studies at Princeton, a fellowship from the American Academy in Berlin, and also one from the American Council of Learned Societies. Her publications include Wealth, Land and Property in Angola, A History of Dispossession, Slavery and Inequality, Cambridge University Press, 2022, and also another book uh, entitled An African Slaving Port and the Atlantic World, Bengala and its Hinterlands, Cambridge University Press, 2013. Dr. Candido, welcome to The Africanist. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So today we will talk about your recent monograph, Wealth, Land and Property in Angola, A History of Dispossession, Slavery and Inequality, Cambridge University Press. What is the main argument you make in this in this monograph? The main argument um, in this book is that there is a long, a longer history of dispossession in Angola. There is lots of um, land grabbing and land occupation happening right now in Angola. And what I try to show in this book is that these events of uh, populations being removed from territories they have occupied has a longer history in Angola. This is not something that this is not something that it starts in the 21st century, but in fact, as I hope I showed in the book, it goes back to the 17th century and efforts to expel people from the land or not to recognize that populations that have been occupying the land are legitimate occupants of this territory um, and how in many ways the history of the transatlantic slave trade is directly connected to um, removal of certain populations from their land. So in many ways how we cannot understand land issues in Africa disconnected from histories of the slave trade and enslavement. By the way, this is a fantastic book. I really enjoyed reading it. And to my audience, please go and order your copy as quickly as you can. You will not regret it. This is a fantastic book. Now, in the monograph, you talk about theories of unoccupied lands and land surplus. So can you explain 
what these concepts are and how they contributed to land dispossession and inequality in West Central Africa. Well, but thank you for, for the for the compliments, first of all. It's very nice to meet people who have read the book and who enjoy reading the book. So I appreciate. Um so theories of unoccupied land. Well, is is this idea that uh, continue to exist that some plots of land have not been occupied? This idea that uh, places are empty, or and because of that, they they need to be better utilized. You know, thinking this very capitalist approach to to land occupation, the notions that land need to be productive, they need to be used for an economic uh, purpose, and this is something that has been you know, affecting most of the global south for centuries the notions that Europeans, when they arrive in these territories, they see these lands that they claim that are unoccupied as unproductive. And what I try to, to show in this book is that no land is uh, unoccupied, that there is a reason why territories that might not be uh, productive in the European perspective in the 17th or in the 18th century, you know, in the sense that there is no, let's say, farming or grazing of, of land, um, they might be occupied for other reasons. So they might be occupied by ancestors, you know, by spirits who are uh, in many ways present in the territory. So they might not be visible but for anyone who lives in the territory, they can recognize that these are not um, so-called empty lands, as they were uh, called by, by Europeans. And, and the idea of land surplus is one that is prevalent in, in the African continent. You know, economists, uh, political scientists, sociologists, you know, financial advisors, and historians have used this idea that there is an excess of land. There is a surplus of land in the African continent in comparison with the size of the population. So this idea that you know, um, you know many of the 20s, 20 and 21st century economic issues in Africa are related to this idea that there is um, a surplus of land. And um, what I try to show here is that land has always been contested. There is a long history of competition for land. Um, th this idea that you know, land is widely available needs to be revisited um, because, as I try to show in the book, people feared some territories for different reasons, and in some are for very <laughs> practical reasons. You know, in a context. In the periods that I talk about, in the region that I talk about, is the region uh, mostly affected by the transatlantic slave trade, is the part mm -hmm. of the continent that lost the largest number of people to the transatlantic slave trade. So there were places that were unoccupied because people realized they were dangerous territories. They didn't want to go and, mm -hmm. I don't know, use the river for uh, multiple reasons, including mm -hmm. that people had been kidnapped in this in this region so people associate historical events such as kidnapping such as and you know, warfare or traumatic events 
two spaces. Mm -hmm. um, so what might seem to an outsider, like a Portuguese officer arriving and seeing no, an occupied land, uh, it's it's there is an explanation why people were not um, mm -hmm. in in that space. So I think this is is something that we need to revisit these ideas and how they might explain uh, lots of issues that econo economists associate. One one of the things that disturbed me when reading some of these you know, World Bank reports or IMF reports. Um, is this idea that uh, women have always been excluded from from land access in Africa. Uh, and this is something that is very familiar to anyone who reads newspapers or, or who read any, any one of these reports. Now, in part because economists or, again, political scientists, sociologists want to explain uh, 21st century inequalities in the continent. Uh, mm -hmm. and, the, and there is this trope of using history to justify contemporary inequalities, you know, to rely on this idea that our oh, women have always been excluded. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, as, as I come across in, in many of, uh, in different archives, including archives in Angola, is that there is lots of documents indicating that women, African-born women, uh, had clear understandings about land occupation and land rights, and many women had land. So th this notion that women have always been excluded, that women have always uh, uh, faced difficulties in accessing land rights, it's something that needs to be revisited because in mm -hmm. certain parts of the continent, in certain specific contexts, women made claim to right, they own land, and there is clear evidence that this happened. Um, so this is what I try to show in this book, that we need to move away from these uh, big ideas, such mm -hmm. as you know, unoccupied land or land surplus, and look uh, carefully to see if we can find evidence about these instances in the past. And chances are that we are going to find exceptions, and these exceptions become very interesting. And that's very that's very interesting when you talk about the gender aspect of uh, land ownership, uh, especially in West Central Africa. And actually, I was I was curious to know, like, how did it evolve land ownership for women in the region of Africa that you study from, let's say, the time before the arrival of the Portuguese to independence how did women's ownership of land evolve and what changed mm -hmm. well it, it it is extremely difficult to know how things were before earlier contacts with with portuguese no mm -hmm. um, what is nowadays angola has a very long history of of european presence you know it goes back to the late 15th century. So the Portuguese were already in, in territories that nowadays are Angola by um, 1490s. Uh, so it's very early. And um, they produce extensive written records of these earlier contacts. Um, not necessarily they were interested in understanding land ownership, but they were profoundly interested in understanding political power uh, and land occupancy. They, they wanted to know who was ruling over these lands. 
um, and who control people and resources. Um, so we have extremely rich documents, like reports, letters, uh, inventories, um, chronicles, dating back to the early 16th century, describing uh, political elites, trade routes, for example, uh, the production of, of this territory. And there are some information about women. They are not the main actor or the, the center of the attention of Portuguese agents, but women are they always there. There is always a mention to women as you know, as rulers in some instances, as others as troublemakers, you know, women who are preventing uh, Portuguese explorers of you know, achieving what they want. So women are always there. And there's lots of information on women as traders, you know, as, as merchants, as small merchants in urban centers, but also eventually as large merchants. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of information. Now, now the challenge is how to find other types of documents that complement the mm-hmm. ones produced by by the Portuguese. And this is extremely difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, because as far as we know, at this point, th- these populations were not necessarily um, producing written documents before the arrival of the Portuguese. They certainly start doing so the minute that they realize that writing is an important technology, is a technology of power. So they they Mm -hmm. apprehend very quickly that writing is important. The the paper trail is very important. And Mm -hmm. we have amazing local archives, archives of local rulers in West Central Africa, um, who in many ways realized that they had to to, to create competing sites of power you know, and, and, and produce documents. Mm-hmm. But what we don't have extensively is information before this contact. Mm-hmm. And this is, so, so it's very, no, going back to your question that you asked like how, how these ideas change, I know how they change, I can trace how they change from roughly the 16th to the 20th century but mm-hmm. I cannot say before that, mm-hmm. um, because you know, uh, historians have this problem that we we want to see the evidence, we want to rely on evidence. And one of the things of um, uh, one type of source that has has been widely used for other parts of the African continent are oral traditions, you know, uh, maintained by professional historians like griots who maintain the story of, of, of the history of different states. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is available for certain parts of West Central Africa, but not for all. And there is another problem that affects Angola, is the fact that Angola had a 40 years of civil war. Um, mm. I mean, it was an anti-colonial war, in the 1960s and uh, 1970s that evolved into a civil war after independence. Mm-hmm. Uh, so from 1975, when Angola became independent, until 2002, the country was devastated by a civil war that created displacement um, from lots of population from the interior into the coast, but also um, it was a generation, generational losses. Lots of people died. Millions of people died mm-hmm. in the civil war. 
And in the process of um, being forced to, to relocate you know, internal displacement of population, uh, things got lost, including the history of, of people. Um, when so many old people, so many young people died in, in, in these four uh, decades of civil war, there was no time to transmit knowledge to younger generations. And in the process, uh, this older history or the, this history that could complement these written documents or even offer a different interpretation of the past, they have been um, lost. Hopefully now that the situation is stable in Angola and has been stable for the past 20 years, um, more can be done in terms of recording uh, some of these accounts, but also trying to reconstruct part of this memory uh, and, and trying to, to, to identify people mm -hmm. who might remember um, you know, events of this very distant past. But it's a challenge, but it's something that hopefully historians in Angola mm -hmm. uh, will have time and support to do so in the next few years, the next decade. Mm That's excellent. I would like to come back to the writing. You mentioned earlier that the technology of writing or writing as power changed basically a lot in terms of land ownership. And in the third chapter of the book, you talk about how written records uh, disrupted land ownership. And you're right, I quote here, um, written documents were more than symbolic. They were a weapon of control for colonizers and tools in the hands of the colonized, who tapped into the power of government to assert their rights." End quote. Can you unpack this statement? I will try. <laughs> Yeah, one of one of the things that called my attention, you know, when I started doing the research for for what became this book, is that I came across lots of um, documents that I did not expect, written documents such as land registers. I started finding lots of regular folks, not important people, but people who who were living. Uh, in, in this place that I've been uh, writing about for a long time, Benguela, people who are living in Benguela in the 1830s are going to the colonial court and um, making claims over land, you know, asking the state to recognize that they had the right to occupy the land or simply making demands, saying that, you know, so-and-so uh, is living in this plot of land. I want to live nearby. Can you please you know, give me the right to do so? And the colonial state at that point, you know, in the hands of, of the Portuguese, it starts creating these, these records you know, that basically recognize the right of occupancy of the land. Not necessarily at this moment in the, 18, the 1830s, uh, land was being sold 
um, it's basically authorizing people to to live in this territory and transform this territory by setting up gardens, for example, vegetable gardens or eventually some plantations. Um, um, but what I noticed is that after a few decades, um, the people who had guaranteed this right of occupancy were then selling uh, land in the market. You know? Because I, I came across another set of documents that indicate transaction of this piece of land. What what I became interested in was understanding this. You know, why why would people who not necessarily um, why would some people go to the Portuguese colonial government and ask for papers? And I realized that there was something interesting going on is that perhaps these were people who were not necessarily uh, be authorized to occupy land by local chiefs, for example. Um, but when they went to the colonial courts, they, they got some power, even if it, if it was a limited one. And I you know it became clear to me that women were some of these actors who would go to uh, Portuguese colonial agents and so like, can you recognize that I can plant some cassava here and I can sell this cassava in the market? And later on, they were selling not only the cassava, but they were selling the land <laughs> to somebody else. Uh, and it's like, th th this is interesting, you know, how people, how colonized people use these small spaces of power to change the situation to their own advantage. So I become interested in, in understanding that. And in the process, I start looking for more evidence of how people were expressing ownership rights over territories. And I came across these records of, um, you know, Sobas, how are the local uh, authorities recognizing this region? Soba going and uh, Sobas uh, creating their own records explaining how they they had been living in 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 these territories following um no, no. they have been living in these territories for immemorial times of following the practices of uh, people who preceded them um and you can see very clearly how mm -hmm. people took advantage of the writing system to create an, an alternative reality of the story that the Portuguese were interested in recording. Mm -hmm. And that for me is interesting because it shows how colonized people apprehended the tools and crafted in a way um, to protect their own interests against Europeans who were not there mm -hmm. to protect the interests of West Central Africans. Mm, that's fascinating. Now, Another aspect of the book or a notion that you develop in the book is that of Libertas. I think I'm pronouncing it right. Yes. But also the idea of property rights as it relates to enslavement of Africans. What was the relationship between property rights, slavery, and manumission in West Central Africa. Yeah, so when I, and I think these will, uh, I will go back to your previous, no, or your first question, you know, this, this idea of um, 
land surplus. And I and I think this this shows the connection between slavery and, and land. Um so one of one of the arguments made by by Europeans in the um, late 19th century and early 20th century, and this is all over uh, the African continent, it's not only uh, something made about Angola. The British, the French, the Germans made these arguments for, for their colonies, the, the different colonies in, in the African continent. The idea that Africans uh, didn't have a notion of property right which is very convenient to make that argument in the 19, the late 19th and the early 20th century because it allows Europeans to seize land. Now, if, if you make the argument that Africans don't have property rights, uh, you are basically saying that these people cannot even comprehend that land can belong to people. Um, is this notion that land is always communal, so no one owns land, then Europeans, can seize this land and make them produ productive. Uh, so this is a, a theory developed by European jurists, European bureaucrats, European colonial officers, European missionaries, and it got lots of track in during colonial times because it mor morally and economically justifies seizing land from people. Um, and Lots of legal treatises were written in the early 20th century, uh, basically suggesting that you know, different African populations didn't have property rights, but also that property rights or the individual property rights is um, superior than any other forms of uh, property rights. You no, know? so it's the consolidation of liberal values that everything can be privatized and sold. Um, and in many ways, we live in a context like that, that we have this push from economists and politicians that we should privatize not only land, but water and every single resource, because you not know, anything is available for sale, disrupting communal rights. Um, but also, the idea that there are certain things that belong to everybody and <laughs> more than to an individual who can then capitalize on, on the sale of, of you know, land or water or air. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is a central argument. And, and then it becomes consolidated, this idea that um, land, you know, land ownership was not available in Africa. And this explains, for example, why slavery existed in Africa by the time Europeans made contact with, with different African populations, in, you know, people in West Africa, but also in West Central Africa. So this notion that slavery uh, existed in Africa before the arrival of European in many ways because uh, African rulers, uh, express ideas of wealth in the control of people. Mm -hmm. Now, one of central arguments that anthropologists and historians have used to explain inequalities or even uh, ideas about sovereignty and power in Africa is that uh, rulers need to accumulate dependence, now, subjects, but also uh, dependents and aggregates in the family 
who can be free people or unfree people. Mm-hmm. And it became central to historians. You know, it, it, I'm talking about ideas circulating in the 1960s, 1970s, and it becomes very strong in the 1980s uh, when historians and anthropologists um, frame this idea of wealthy people that Africans express ideas of, of, of wealth in people rather than in land and anything anything else. So mm-hmm. I this is what I wanna I wanna and, and this is what I try to make the argument of this book that the idea of land surplus uh, is intimately linked to the idea that the only form of wealth in Africa is wealth in people. Mm-hmm. Because it shows that, or the, or the argument is that African rulers invested in independence, no raiding enemies, uh, seizing captives of wars as soldiers, as workers, as dependents. So, in many ways, in accumulating people rather than land ownership. You know, so, I connect to the, I try to connect to these two arguments. Mm-hmm. And this. This is a, a canon in African history. No, scholars have written lots of books. Anthropologists have written lots of books about these these different theories. But what I I, I realize and what frustrated me while putting this book together is that these are scholarships that are not not necessarily in conversation. People who work on land issues don't talk with people who who work on on slavery. And I think we cannot understand these two concepts separately. Now, in order to enslave people, you you need to remove their land. You have to seize their land. So they become refugees. They become vulnerable. It's easier to take advantage of people if they are not connected to a territory and if they don't have a mm-hmm. powerful ruler protecting them. So for me, understanding... Uh, property or ownership over human beings and ownership over land, they are connected. I cannot see these things as separate Mm -hmm. because otherwise we cannot understand why some African rulers were willing to sell people Mm -hmm. to the transatlantic slave trade. Now, if, if we continue to repeat this idea, the wealthy people was the only way that African rulers express ideas of property, of, of wealth. So how can we explain the transatlantic slave trade? Mm-hmm. It doesn't make any sense to sell human beings who could make you more powerful to Europeans. Yeah. <laughs> Economically, it doesn't make sense. So, mm-hmm. so in part, this is what I try to, to understand. You know, how are these things connected? Mm-hmm. And um, the libertos are then the freed people, so the people who are who are born in captivity or who became enslaved, uh, and then they they acquire them their their freedom through different means. You now it could be because they bought their freedom, or they negotiate their freedom, or they flee and they reinvent themselves as as free people. Um, and it becomes an obsession if these people can or not exercise rights over land ownership. And for me, it's interesting because they, the, the question of the libertos or the freed people, so the people who are uh, once enslaved and are no longer enslaved, 
how do we deal with them and access to land? And this was something that preoccupied lots of jurists and colonial officers in the 19th century. And, and in many ways, they connect these two trends of the scholarship that are seen as separately. Now, I want to talk about your experience writing this book. So from fieldwork to concluding this book, what was it like writing the monograph? What challenges did you encounter and what made it also a pleasant experience? Well, when I started doing the research for this book, I, I... I did not imagine I would write about land because you no, know, I I was trained as someone working on on the effects of the transatlantic slave trade on West Central Africa. So I thought I would do something similar to that. I also I imagined that I would write a book about women because I came across so many documents about African women. So I didn't imagine writing about land, but. Uh, finding these rich documents in in different archives in Angola made me realize how little I knew about uh, land, how little I knew about property rights. Uh, you know, property is so central to how we think about the twenty first century. You know how we you know how I you know as a, as a historian how I live in this world. You know we are. We, we assume that everything belongs to someone. And um, while reading these documents, I start questioning uh, many things that I, I realized that I didn't know. Uh, I didn't know as a historian, but also you know, as a person. <laughs> I didn't understand how property rights uh, came to, to exist. Um, and it became clear to me in the process of um, reading documents, but also in trying to organize ideas uh, about this book, that I needed to read more about uh, the, the history of, of property, you know, why and when people decide that land needs to be commodified, mm -hmm. um, when and why um, uh, no, slavery come to an end, how is it connected to 21st century inequalities in Angola. Um, so putting the, the, this book together for me, it was very challenging in recognizing how little I knew about certain things mm -hmm. and how I assumed that these were solved issues for his scholar, for his scholars. And then I realized that in the process of, of reading more of the gaps in the scholarship on things that are not have not been examined in in greater detail, mm -hmm. and this was a challenge uh, uh, for me. It's also a challenge for me to read these very rich documents, um, and most of them available in Portuguese, and then have to write in English um, because sometimes you know um, the concept of property is much. They are, there is a richer terminology in Portuguese to talk about you know, possession, rights, occupancy, uh, um, and many other 
ideas that do not exist in English or everything go under the big umbrella of property rights or land tenure in English. Um, so I also recognize that there are certain ideas that I could not express in, in English language. Mm. Um, but it also surprises me the, the richness in, in African archives. There, mm. there are so many documents. There are so many written documents. And how little is known about that outside mm -hmm. of specific contexts. You know, we continue to, to reproduce this idea that, oh, we cannot know about the African past because there are very few documents. And this is not true. This is not true for Angola, but this is not true perhaps for lots of places in the African continent. Um, it doesn't mean that there are documents in English or in French or in Portuguese, but there are rich collections of documents in different languages, uh, some of them using um, the Arabic um, alphabet, Arabic script, but to express ideas in other languages. <laughs> um, and in many ways, what we need is more people going over these documents and writing about this past than simply saying that, oh, there isn't much that we don't know about the African past, or, or reproducing these ideas, such as that women didn't have access to land, that mm -hmm. really hurt people in the present. You know, th these are ideas created under a moment of European imperialism, European occupation, uh, but also of you know, white supremacy ideas that basically silence black people in general or try to silence black people in general and when we reproduce these ideas in the scholarship we hurt people in the present um, who then cannot get bank loans to buy land because you know politicians say like oh it has always been like this when it's mm. not true mm -hmm. that's that's fascinating interesting thank you for sharing your experience in writing this book plus all fun questions top three novels top three novels that you would recommend to anybody <laughs> oh top three novels that i would recommend oh i um well i have top three novels that i want to read um right now so i'm recommending you no know, things that i i haven't had a chance to read but mm -hmm. i i i bought these novels um in recent months and because i will be you no know, now that i finished this book like these are the things that I'm dreaming about reading as soon as the semester is over and I have time to do uh, anything else besides thinking about this book or reading mm -hmm. papers. Um, so one one uh, some uh, this is connected. So I I, I read last year uh, Paulina Ciciani's um, novel Niketch uh, that focuses on on a history of polygamy. Uh, Chisiani is a Mozambican author who some of her books have been published into English and I read this uh, this novel Niket uh, in Portuguese mm -hmm. and I'm looking forward to read uh, her and I think this is her 
uh, her first novel, uh, Balada de Amor e Vento. I'm not sure if it's available in English, but it's it's her first novel. Um, and I haven't had a chance to read, but I'm looking forward to read this in the, the next few, few months. So I highly recommend mm -hmm. that anyone listening to us read uh, Paulina Ciciani, a Mozambican uh, author who, who writes beautifully um, and brings much attention to Mozambican uh, female authors. And, and I think this is important. Um, so now I recommend, well, it's connected as well. I, I, I read, um, a few months ago, uh, and I know that I'm very late on that. Um, uh, but I read, uh, CC Dunga Rembo's book, mm -hmm. Nervous Con Condition, mm -hmm. in the next few months, hopefully in the summer. Mm -hmm. Uh, and another book that I'm looking forward to, to read uh, very soon. It's a novel uh, by another you know, Southern African uh, author, uh, Novuyu Rosa Chuma, The House of Stone, in part because I, yeah, I, in my teaching, I teach so much about you know, modern Zimbabwe, uh, and I feel like I have to read more from, from authors writing about these spaces in many ways to assign new novels to to my students but also to to expand my my horizon in the next few months excellent now top three dishes oh top, th top three is... dishes you cannot live without <laughs> uh this is i think for me this is the most difficult question top three dishes that i cannot live without <laughs> i have to say Feijoada, uh, which is a Brazilian dish. I'm from Brazil. Uh, and it's black beans mm -hmm. uh, with kale, rice, and uh, manioc flour. Uh, this is Brazilian national dish, and it, it should be in anyone's list of the top three dishes. Nice. What is it? Could you repeat the name of the dish? Uh, it's feijoada. Feijão uh, is beans, means beans in Portuguese. Okay. So feijoada is basically a black bean stew okay. uh, with lots of meat. Mm. Uh, is a dish also associated with um, slavery. It's, um, so it, it does have a historical connection, but it became a national dish in, in Brazil. Mm. Um, and it's delicious. Um, and it can be done with lots of, usually the, 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 the typical recipe would be with non-desirable non parts of the pork, like tail, ears, feet mm. of a pig, you know. Um, but uh -huh. it can, you have variations of that. There is vegetarian uh, feijoada uh, that are more, are more accessible for anyone who doesn't eat uh, pork. I think I have also have to say Algerian couscous. <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, have, and I have to make it very clear that it's Algerian, not Moroccan couscous, <laughs> not Tunisian couscous, because I don't want to oh. be in trouble. You, you want to? You, you don't want to start a couscous <laughs> war, right? No. Like the Jordan war, the Senegal one, finally. <laughs> You know, <laughs> I know, I know. I think oh, you I don't have... want to start a couscous war. <laughs> I don't want to start a couscous war, but I also want to include uh, 
You know, I also think it's important to recognize that North African dishes are African dishes, you know, that there is nothing dividing North Africa um, from the rest of the continent. And, and we shouldn't go into this politics of imagining that the Sahara divides people rather than unify people. Uh, so besides the feijoada, I will have to mm -hmm. list the Algerian couscous. But since I work in Angola, I think I should mention an Angolan dish. Oh, and that is a difficult one because there are so many ones. I really like cassata, uh, which is a dish done from from manioc flour. Mm. Um, but I also like variations of um, of any dish with beans. I like them, and with uh, cassava flour. So there is something that is also a national dish in Angola called fungi, mm -hmm. which is a, is a starch. It's very similar to fufu um, that exists in other parts of, of the African continent. Yeah. But it's, and then you prepare with chicken, with vegetables, um, and it's a nice, heavy dish to be enjoyed with, with friends. Excellent. So I have to say Angolan fungi as well. Yeah, great. And then finally, top three places on your bucket list. Oh, another difficult question. Um, top three places in my bucket list. I will have to list um, Mozambique. And this is connected to the fact that I've been reading Mozambican uh, literature and I've never been to, to any place in Mozambique. So mm -hmm. I would like one day to go to Mozambique. And that it's connected to another place I would love to visit, uh, Zanzibar. Um, perhaps I should say, like, can I say East Africa? <laughs> in in my, general, sure. Zanzibar. Bucket, yeah, I heard my, great things about Zanzibar. Uh, in my book, yeah, in part because we, I, I have read so much about East Africa. I include East Africa in my teaching a lot, you know, the, the Swahili coast. So I would love to go there. Mm -hmm. But I have to say that Senegal is also in my bucket list. Yay! Senegal. There's so many people who want to go to my crazy country. That I makes know. me happy. I know. Perhaps you should. <laughs> I don't know if they say that if they're saying that because of me, or they just they they actually want to go there and visit. But either way, it's a compliment. <laughs> No, I, I I really want to go there. Um, well, let's go. Let's go over the summer. Okay, we have a plan. <laughs> Let us all go. <laughs> Excellent. Well, that's that's that's. I think that's a very that's a very nice list. I really want want to go to Zanzibar myself. I heard great things about that place, and I mean, I haven't been to East Africa yet. That's a region that I would love to visit soon. And uh, just, you know, to remind to our listeners, get your copy of uh, Mariana's book. It's available on all the platforms that you can purchase a book, especially Amazon or directly from the publisher, Cambridge University Press. And uh, Mariana, it was a pleasure to have you on The Africanists and talk uh, about your monograph. Thank you very much for yep. joining us. Thank you so much for for giving me this space for reading the book and giving me a chance to talk more about about work. 
yeah it's always a pleasure and we hope that you will come back at some point to share more about your uh, ongoing scholarly projects thank you so much and then on that note i will give you guys rendezvous for another special episode with another special guest in the meantime stay safe and healthy Luttons pour la paix Kondiamo Africa Mon laigna Mane Africa Moi sogno natangue